Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everybody likes rail, except maybe Governor Mike DeWine. One of the stories we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and taking a short break from City Hall coverage, Courtney Estalfi. Welcome all. Let's get going. Our governor has been tepid on this issue, but anyone who cares about railway access in the state receives some great news Monday. We have money coming on two potential projects. Lisa, which ones and why aren't they high speed? <laughs> well, unfortunately, Amtrak doesn't own the, the rail lines that they run on. That's part of the problem. But the Amtrak passenger rail line linking Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton, also known as the 3C and D line, is one of four Ohio routes chosen to receive federal planning and development funding. This is part of the Federal Railroad Corridor Development Program. So they'll get $500,000 startup study money for phase one, and then states will, their buy-in will increase. So in phase two, the states will give 10% of the cost. They'll give 20% of the cost in phase three. Other three lines that got this $500,000 money is uh, the Cleveland Toledo Detroit. That's a new line. Uh, Columbus, Chicago, Pittsburgh, another new line. And then the existing Cardinal line, which is Cincinnati, New York City, Chicago, and DC, they're going to increase existing service along that route. We only have two routes that run through Cleveland. There's the Lakeshore Limited and the Capitol Limited, and they stop in Cleveland in the early morning hours. And I've had to pick up people from that line at four in the morning. Um, and the Cardinal route in Southern Ohio, um, I'm sorry, I'm confused here. Oh, wait. So Columbus is one of the largest U.S. cities without passenger rail. So this would hopefully connect them up. But as you remember, Ohio has been kind of lukewarm about Amtrak federal funding. Back in 2010, Governor John Kasich refused $400 million. He was against state supporting of Amtrak. Governor DeWine was reluctant to take the infrastructure money that they waved under his nose, but he decided to go for it now that states have a little less buy-in on the project. The, there is excitement in Cleveland business circles about the idea of a route from Cleveland through Toledo to Detroit with the idea that you would stop at Detroit's airport, which mm -hmm. is an international hub. You can get to a lot more places from Detroit than you can from Cleveland. But if that's not high speed, it's not going to help. And none of these plans are high speed because the rail lines can't accommodate it. I don't know. It didn't say whether they're going to build new lines. Because as we know, Amtrak almost exclusively runs on lines owned by freight rail companies. So they have to give way to freight rail traffic, which can cause some big delays. But they did not say whether with these two new routes are going to have to lay new track, I assume, but I don't know. Yeah, Susan did an update a little while later in the day in which it said that uh, that they can't be high speed because these dollars won't pay for high speed tracks, which is disappointing, right? Because if you could get to Cincinnati quickly, this would be good. But the, the trip to Cincinnati by rail will be longer than driving. 
Yeah, but I, I feel like we have to put infrastructure down. I mean, I get it. You know, we should go to high-speed rail, but there are too many Republicans and too many airline lobbyists that are against that. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, when you hear rail these days, everybody immediately leaps to the idea that, oh, finally, we're getting high-speed rail. And when you start reading the fine print on this, it's just more trains running on the same tracks. And as you pointed out, passenger rail doesn't take precedence over freight, and freight is very busy on these rail lines. So I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see whether Mike DeWine takes all that into account and and decides whether to move forward with a big investment of Ohio money. You know, it's it's I forget what the time was in her story, but it's it's not an hour longer to get to Cincinnati from Cleveland, but it's close to an hour longer than if you just drive. I get it. You can do work on the train. You're not having to focus on the road. You don't have people texting next to you that can kill you, but it's still not as expedient as it would be with high speed. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Adults might be able to compartmentalize their lives and put down their cell phones while working at tasks, but a lot of school students don't appear to have that ability. What are some Northeast Ohio schools doing to overcome students spending so much time on their phones when they're supposed to be learning? Laura, is this a problem in your house yet? Oh my gosh, this is a constant problem with my 13-year-old. It is so easy for kids developing brains to get addicted to screens. They're tiny little computers that are sending them dopamine hits constantly with the bing bang, you know, and text message sounds and social media, which my kid does not have yet, but um, games and YouTube videos and text messages. And so obviously, you can't learn if you're paying attention to the phone. So Akron Public Schools are... Hannah Drown looked at two different school districts, uh, very different ideas about what to do with a cell phone. And Akron is, is one of the districts that's prohibiting cell phone use in school buildings. That's 77% of schools that ban the use of cell phones for non-academic purposes in 2020, the year of the pandemic, when a lot of people weren't in school. But that's up from 65% in 2015. And every school is grappling with this. So what they do is they have these special pouches, yonder pouches, so that kids can keep their cell phones with them during the day, but they're locked. And it takes an administrator to touch a base that unlocks everybody's at the same time. So they're they're keeping them with them, but they can't access them. And that's very different than in Beechwood. Now, Beechwood, in their middle school, they make the kids put them in their locker, which is the same thing my kid's school does. But at the high school, each teacher has discretion. They might put it in a basket when they walk in the room or make them face down on their desks or but to they can use them as a hall pass and they basically like scan something when they walk out of their classroom and scan it when they walk back in so that teachers and administrators know where they are and they can't just disappear to the bathroom for however long yeah i this for a lot of our older uh members of our audience, this is a no brainer. Just take the phones away. I mean, it, it's like yeah. they shouldn't have phones when they're being instructed. We all went to school. If you're not paying attention and I often was not, uh, you're not learning. <laughs> and so, you know, you should not have distractions in front of you, but then you have that blowback by some parents that are like, I, I need to be in contact with my kid, which mm -hmm. older generations don't understand that at all. None of us were in contact with our parents when we were at school. You were 
under the the guiding guidance of the I mean, schools. you didn't have school shootings when you were in school or when I was in school, right? And I think that is a top of mind for parents that if there is an emergency, if there is a shooter, they want to be able to access their kid. And the Yonder pouches would allow, you know, to unlock at one time so everybody had access to their phones. But the Hackram Public Schools, which dealt with that blowback, said, look, in an emergency, we don't want kids on their phone texting you. We want them listening to us and following the directions and the instructions so that we can keep them safe. And that makes a lot of sense too. Like, so they need to follow the the administrators who know what they're doing. But I, I get it. We've gotten emails from the principal that are like, do not text your kid during the school day. They can't access it. They will get it at 3 p.m. when they're out of school. So you can text your kid all you want, but they're not going to text you back till classes are over, which makes sense to me. Right. That's as it should be. Like I said, it, I, I'm amazed that there's so much conversation about this because it seems like just a simple no-brainer. You can't have the phone when you're in the classroom. End of story. I mean, I guess having them at lunch, okay, fine. It would be better if you're learning to socialize and have live conversations with your classmates. But but in the classroom, I don't know. I mean, Lisa, does this strike you as ridiculous like it strikes me? It does. But then again, you know, I went to school, elementary school in the 60s, you know, so I... I, I don't know. And I, I worry about them taking away phones from kids and kids getting mad about it and maybe lashing out at the teacher. I'm sure that that happens quite a bit. But yeah, I mean, to me, it's like no phones, put them away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the schools say that phones cause an increase in bullying, fights and social media threats. Right. Because think about it. It is so easy for people to shame kids on social media. I mean, that's well documented how bullying doesn't end at the end of the school day anymore. And we're talking about mostly high school here. But I would like to point out my kid, my my younger child, my daughter goes to she's in fifth grade. And there are third graders with phones. There are probably second graders with phones. Wow. And she has a gizmo watch. And her rule is like she can't have her watch during the day either. So it's not just a high school that's dealing with this. It's probably every school has got to figure this out. Check out Hannah Drown's story on this. It's enlightening. It's on Cleveland.com. And you are listening to Today in Ohio. We're still talking about the Sam Randazzo indictment in the HB6 case. We published a story laying out all of the incriminating evidence that has been offered so far about Chuck Jones. He was the guy in charge of First Energy when it was paying all the bribe money. And it makes you wonder why this guy has not been charged. Courtney, let's talk about how many ways he comes into this scandal. My goodness, the list is long. So like you said, we know householders been convicted here. Randazzo's been charged. We know First Energy has said that Chuck Jones and former lobbyist Mike Dowling played a central role in, in this bribery scheme to bribe these two public officials, yet nothing. So so it's worth a look at, at like you said, all the ways they're inter intertwined here. Let's give folks a rundown. And, and let's rewind back to January 2017. That's when Chuck Jones and Householder flew together in First Energy's private jet to attend Donald Trump's presidential inauguration. Afterward, they met with lobbyist Dowling and others at a fancy D.C. restaurant. And during trial earlier this year, we learned from prosecutors that this trip led to the creation of a dark money nonprofit, the one that Householder controls and, and the one that First Energy loaded up with cash. Okay, fast forward the next year in 2018, Jones and Dowling met with Sam Randazzo at his condo to devise a plan to get him, you know, put up as chair of the PUCO. 
and and for the company to pay him $4.3 million. Fast forward again to the next year in 2019, Jones led the push for Householder to become the Speaker of the House. And, and during that year, the two were texting and emailing just a lot. They were in touch all the time, talking about HB6 and this deal they wanted to get through. And then finally, when the legislation passed in July 2019, I mean, there's just some some obvious examples here. Blatant. Jones texted Rondazzo, quote, HB6, F anybody who ain't us. And he had that photoshopped image of Mount Rushmore featuring the faces of Dowling, Randazzo, and others. So this stuff is all blatant. This is all filtered out in the last three or so years since we've been uh, made aware of this through court filings, trial, and, and other lanes. But like you said, we haven't seen indictments for the people we've been told to the bribing. Well, it's just like the Randazzo case. We've been asking for three years why he wasn't charged. The evidence, once First Energy said, yes, we're guilty, we bribed with all this money, it's over. You have the evidence you need to convict. And we just never understood why prosecutors didn't do it. There was all sorts of speculation. Well, they're trying to work a deal. It doesn't take three years to work a deal. You go to them with the deal. If they don't take the deal, you hammer them. The same thing applies here. And look, you don't have corruption without corruptors. If the if there's not $60 million to inject into the corrupt machine, the corrupt machine doesn't operate. These guys need to be held to account. And I, I can't tell you how many people I hear from saying, go, go, go. Please don't let this go. They shouldn't escape justice. We're so proud of you guys because you constantly report this. They talk about the reporters we have that work on it. I mean, they're just grateful that someone is paying attention because it doesn't appear prosecutors are. I'll remind everybody about the county corruption case back in 2010, 2012. Ann Rowland was the prosecutor that had a whole bunch of schemes, 60 plus people, and did not take anywhere near this long to get justice done. She ran through it. If you were going to make a deal, you made the deal. If you didn't, she took you to court. Where are the charges against these guys? Yeah, U.S. Attorney Kenneth Parker's office, you know, down there in Cincinnati, He's in the hot seat, right? We all want to know when this action is going to be taken, if it's going to be taken. Jones has repeatedly insisted he's innocent here. Um, however, you know, attorneys for Jones and Mike Dowling said in, in a March court filing that the two faced looming potential indictments. So where are they? We reached out to Parker's office this week to get a comment here. As you know, you know, law enforcement like this never talks about what they're about to do. And that continued this week. However, Parker spokeswoman told us this matter continues. She said they can never confirm any potential charges, but she said the office is continuing to work diligently. Yeah. The idea that they went into court almost a year ago and said, we expect indictments are imminent. Tells you everything you need to know. They were expecting to get charged. Where are the charges? You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked about Mike DeWine looking like a stooge yesterday in the HB6 case with Randazzo and First Energy scheming to get DeWine to name Randazzo his utilities chief. But that was not DeWine's only link to this case. Lisa, how many times did he intersect with this stinky deal? Uh, quite a few times. And he was kind of there when it was hatched. Although, you know, we can't 
he's not been charged. There, there's no implications, but he's kind of corruption adjacent here. So back in December 18th of 2018, at that infamous dinner, Governor DeWine was at that dinner with First Energy CEO Chuck Jones, lobbyist Mike Dowling, Lieutenant Governor John Husted at the Columbus Athletic Club. And Randazzo texted Jones and Dowling later that night after the dinner to lay out the payment plan for that $4.3 million bribe. And then a couple of months later, DeWine named Randazzo as Puco chair. That was February 2019. Now, back in 2021, DeWine told reporters that he doesn't have a specific recollection of that dinner. He said it was really a more general conversations. And he said he didn't know about the bribe when he hired Randazzo. But uh, when a DeWine spokesman was pressed for an update, he said that the governor has no further recollections to offer. Um, He's got a lot of First Energy people on his staff. Um, Let's see. uh, Legislative Director Dan McCarthy became a First Energy lobbyist in 2019. He created the Partners for Progress nonprofit. He has not been charged. He's now on the State Racing Commission, appointed by DeWine. DeWine's campaign advisor, Josh Rubin, was present at that dinner in 2018 He became a first energy lobbyist in 2019. He's now on the board of Jobs Ohio, another DeWine appointee. And then his chief of staff, Laurel Dawson, was married to a first energy communications consultant, and she's been transferred to a counselor role. And I do want to point out that DeWine was apparently warned twice about Randazzo. There was a 2019 dossier from his campaign treasurer said that they need to probe Randazzo's opaque and undisclosed tie to First Energy, and then later warned of his extreme bias against wind and solar energy. People seem to have short memories, because I've been hearing from a lot of readers who are thanking us for going through all this again, even though there's not a whole lot new in the indictment of Randazzo, just reminding people of all the things that have happened. People are writing saying, man, this is bad. The state of government is bad. Thanks for doing this. And I, I wish Mike DeWine, who, like you said, is not incriminated would step forward to acknowledge just what a blow this is to confidence in state government and apologize. So, okay, you want to say I didn't see it coming? I didn't know. Apologize because you should have. This is the worst scandal in Ohio State House history. The government was bought and paid for, and he had a role. He didn't do the watchdog role he should have to make sure the legislation was honest and the right thing was happening. He ought to be sincere with the people of Ohio and say, I should have done better and I'll do better for the rest of my term. Well, and more things may come to light because that first energy investor lawsuit that's currently ongoing, ongoing, they've subpoenaed documents from DeWine and they've also scheduled a deposition with Lieutenant Governor Husted. So more to come. Yeah, I just, I don't expect, I just don't see Mike DeWine as being a guy who took money to do something. It's yeah. not who he's been. I just don't see it. So so if he is truly just a guy that went along and didn't do the due diligence he should do, acknowledge it to Ohio. Try and rebuild confidence in this government because it's at an all-time low. This is horrible stuff. And, and I just, the people I'm hearing from are aghast at the state of, What's going on? So I, I got I got to throw out there, we've had these questions. It feels like an elephant in the room. We've had these questions about why Jones and Dowling have not been charged yet. Usually when you're looking at, you know, a criminal case, you try and flip culpable people up to get the big fish at the top. I mean, 
who who else is out there to get other than the CEO and the Speaker of the House and the head of the PUCO? I I worry that look, you don't know who's going to be elected president next year. But if a Republican wins, hopefully, if a Republican wins, it's Nikki Haley, not the criminal Donald Trump. But if a Republican wins, then Parker's out of a job. And when you leave a U.S. attorney's job, you usually go to a big, expensive law firm. There's big, expensive law firms representing Dowling and Jones. And I just hope that's not what's driving this. I mean, those guys need to face justice, to send a message everywhere that if you fund corruption, you wear the orange jumpsuit. I hope that's not what's going on here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Anti-abortion groups trying to manipulate the court system to block the will of Ohio voters on abortion got stuffed by a judge Tuesday. Courtney, what was their underhanded effort and how did a judge appropriately call it what it was? Yeah, so this effort was from a coalition of pro-life folks in the state. This includes the Ohio Christian Alliance, three current and former Republican Ohio state representatives, leaders of several anti-abortion groups, and a community pregnancy center, among others. And and they were making a play to file an amicus brief in support of this long-running, or an amicus brief in a, in a case that's basically long-running litigation over abortion clinic transfer agreements. The head of the Ohio Health Department, Bruce Vanderhoff, is requesting summary judgment in that case to wrap it up, right? And the the this group of pro-life folks wanted to weigh in with a brief. And we, we heard from U.S. District Judge Michael R. Barrett on Monday, no way, they don't have a place to weigh in here. He kind of dismissed it as it sounded like an absurd request. Basically, these groups had described having interests in defending against the misuse of ballot initiative by abortion providers. They're trying to get at this issue after after voters passed the constitutional amendment this fall, protecting abortion rights. And, and this group of anti-abortion folks said they have direct and vital interest in objecting to any implementation of issue one by the court. So that was kind of their way to to nose into this this long running litigation. But Barrett Barrett shut them down immediately. Yeah, it's a ridiculous play to say we don't care what the voters, what the majority says. We want to stop it any way we can. It's just not the way things work. That's not what democracy is about. The voters have spoken. The voters are going to rule on this. And unlike with marijuana, which they're messing with, uh, the constitutional amendment stands. It's They're going to have a hard time overcoming it. Good for the judge to slap these folks silly. You are listening to Today in Ohio. We've got to talk about this next one because it's just so interesting. Laura, what is a tiny forest? Who came up with the idea? And where do we have one in Northeast Ohio? Had you ever heard of this before? Because no. I totally had not. Yeah, no. I've heard of tiny houses, but tiny forest is new to me. And this concept has been around since the 70s, developed by a Japanese botanist and forester named Akira Miyawaki. And he was fascinated by the idea of primal forests or old growth forests that function the same way they did before human intervention. But Japan didn't have any left because of their dense population. So he wanted to come up with a way to restore wooded areas to support native plants, animals, and fungal communities. And this has gained momentum across the world, and especially in the United States on the East and West Coast. But in the Midwest, where we've spread out a little bit more, it hasn't been very popular. Well, Lindhurst Community of Faith Church, they wanted to do one. So right along Mayfield Road, they 
planted 110 trees and shrubs in 120 square feet. Is I mean, it is an incredibly small little garden patch. They put all this in there. And the idea is they're native plants, so they flourish in this area. They actually thought about climate change, so they're good for wet, warm weather. And you dig down three feet and put in all sorts of good soil, like compost and wood chips, so that they have everything they need to grow and thrive. And they'll grow up you know, next to each other and hopefully support all of this habitat. Yeah, I just thought this was incredibly innovative, the way to get these things to grow super fast. I mean, you got to dig down really deep. Six feet is deep, but it just, it builds these things so quickly uh, that it, it it's a, almost a miracle. Can you imagine planting one of those in your backyard and a few years later having, you know, towering trees? <laughs> Well, when we moved into this house, and we have a half an acre, uh, there were barely any trees, and we planted a bunch and, you know, trying to shade the house and stuff. But I actually Googled how to plant a forest because I didn't want to mow it all all the time because, I, I mean, lawns are bad, right? Like, they are useless for the environment. And so I think we should all think about this if we have the space. I mean, obviously, you do have to dig down a bit. You have to be thoughtful, but... Uh, we could all use more woods. And we've talked a lot of times about the tree canopy in Cuyahoga County, how it's shrinking. Trees do amazing things for the environment. They can lower the temperature. They can stop erosion, all sorts of good things. So I, I hope this spreads. With the clay that we have in most of our yards, digging down six feet <laughs> is a big It's three job. feet. It's three oh, feet, it's three just feet. to be clear. Uh, it's it's but not that's quite still, as bad, man. but yes. If you dug in your clay, that is, you'd need machinery. I don't machinery. have clay, but a backhoe would be really helpful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fascinating story. Susan Brownstein does it again. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It looks like the campus that Progressive Insurance is abandoning near Interstate 271 in Mayfield will have another corporate headquarters. Laura, who's buying it? This is Park Place Technology. They're a data center and networking firm. They've been looking for new headquarters, and so they're buying this campus with three empty progressive buildings. We don't know the total square footage or the purchase price. They didn't want to tell us that yet. Um, but remember, most people are working from home when it comes to progressive, and so they're getting rid of their unneeded office space. And this is good news for Highland Heights because there's a lot of tax base, right? Park Place is currently in Mayfield Heights, so I don't know how much space they've got there, but they'll be leaving there. It could take three to four months to do the formal diligence on the prospective site and then uh, move in um, later in 2024. There was so much effort by the business community in Cleveland to get Park Place downtown. This has been going on for, I don't know, three, four years now. Uh, and they kept trying to bring them into a downtown building. There's lots of vacancies downtown. So I'm sure the downtown business core feels like this is a failure because it stays out in the suburbs. But it sounds like Park Place wanted a campus and here's a ready-made campus. Exactly. <laughs> Progressive's like, yes, here, here's three buildings. They have a nice area. Why not? It's close to the highways. And it's not very far to move from Mayfield Heights to Highland Heights. So if their employees lived in the area, this makes it easy for them. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's not the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, but is it Ohio's version? Courtney, what is the Ohio Holiday Lights Trail? It is a showcase of 70 places across our fair state where Ohioans can get their fill of holiday light displays. 
and and you can travel all around Toledo, Steubenville, Zanesville, Columbus. Basically, there's locations all over the state, so it's easy to access no matter where you are in Ohio. But it's worth noting that 19 of these 70 displays on the Ohio Holiday Lights Trail are right here in Northeast Ohio, so definitely worth a local look. This, this is an effort put together by Tourism Ohio. It, it developed this trail in 2018 to promote holiday light displays across the state. It started with 30 locations, and now it's more than doubled to 70. And it includes some well-knowns like Stan Hewitt in Akron, which I think a lot of people in this area are, are, are you know, appreciative of. And it includes places like Wild Winter Lights at the Cleveland Zoo, the Magic of Lights Northeast Ohio at the County Fairgrounds, and the Country Lights drive through at Lake Metro Park's Farm Park. It includes, you know, looking at the whole state, it includes zoos, trains, museum displays, some that are indoor displays, some that are outdoor displays. So it's a good variety depending on whatever the needs are for you and your friends and your family. It's worth noting that, that this year's list includes some new locations that aren't too far away for Clevelanders. There's a new one in Sandusky at the Erie County Fairgrounds. There's a new one in Canton called the Ohio Christmas Factory, which is all indoor. And it also includes Elegant Illusions Christmas Lights drive through and that's just south of Youngstown at the Canfield Fairgrounds. Is there any evidence at all that anybody has used this to do a lights tour? <laughs> you know, that was not covered. I, I wonder, but, I mean, people get so into Christmas. I got to think some people are using this as a leap off point. Well, we happen to have somebody on this podcast who, if there's a family activity, they've done it. Laura, have you considered doing the lights tour? <laughs> no. No, I'm not driving to Cincinnati to do a lights tour, or or I'm not driving through the fairgrounds. Um, I don't even think we've been to the zoo lights. I, I quite enjoy driving around my neighborhood. And, you know, those free displays that the different um, streets put on. There's a good one in Fairview Park. Um, so, no. But I'm glad that other people are doing it. <laughs> okay. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's going to be it for this episode. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you for listening. Come on back Thursday for another discussion of the news. 